Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And I'm Jason Michelli. Whoa, Hello. Jason Michelli. Not in the bunker, although it probably sounds almost as good as if Yeah, you we've been looking forward to having this uh, opportunity to bulls gashish with you, right? Bull gashish. Yeah, this is a bull gashishta episode. And yeah, you're one of the first, you're one of the top of the list when we did, came up uh, drinking whiskey, we came up with the bullshit. Yeah, we did. Idea. Yeah, and we had not been drinking a lot when your name came up. <laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah. No, yeah it was early like, on yeah. in the drinking. I, I've never bulga whatever with two men before, so <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, oh, it's, sure, probably, yeah. it's probably why you're not a bishop. I, uh, yeah, that, if you that, were a bishop, you exactly, would have done that. Yeah, yeah. You, you'd be a bishop. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, we could put that on your dossier. But anyway, Jason, you are a an author. You are... The best-looking cancer survivor I've seen. This guy's at the gym like five days a week. Some days I think he faked cancer um, with how fit he is. And you are the premier United Methodist podcaster. Uh, I think that's a kind The only, right? pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, see, and, that's good. Take it, take you've it. you've become a friend, and you, in a recent edition of... I'm a damn good cook, too. I believe out. that. Yeah. Yeah. And good. it's never, never sick at sea. Never, hardly ever. Sullivan. <laughs> he does. He periodically does break into show tunes over yeah, here. For a straight guy, you have a disturbing, like, robust knowledge of show tunes. You know, it's even yeah. worse is he was trying to give me a dressing instruction the other day, which was particularly uncomfortable. Yeah, about like, you know, just what to wear on dates, you know. Just, yeah. Anyway. It actually came from my wife. So and he was, was he was wearing capri pants while he was doing it, which yeah. made me oh, really uncomfortable. That's a whole other episode. Yeah, I, he, I, was, he I was, wasn't. I made that part up. I, made, I have rolled my pants. Yeah, you have I, rolled them up. I know. Yeah. Capri pants, that might make me revise my opinion on eternal suffering and punishment. <laughs> there we go. Which, speaking of Eternals, by the way, there Howard Stern has written. Before we go to that, we're talking about musicals. Has he wants to come out with Fox News the musical? <laughs> and so <laughs> you got the. Uh, <laughs> it's like you know you have uh, Murdoch. <laughs> Oh, who can I find to run my network? Hey, I, was, I think it's you. And then he goes, CNN can eat our shit. They don't ever hire hot chicks. <laughs> and then the middle of it goes like, we have to find someone conservative and, and slimy. Let me show you Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> it's, it, yeah. it's pretty great. Anyway, so in, in one of your podcasts, uh, you, uh, you do two, right? Crackers and Grape Juice. And the other one, fairly recent, is Strangely Warm. It's Indeed. a lectionary podcast. And in the lectionary one, you, you said that because of the Trinity, you don't believe in hell. Did I say that? It said it in the write-up. So, yeah, I, 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 I take full credit for that then. All right. So, we should just <laughs> jump right Did in I then. Say that? Well, it was in the podcast. If I, if, someone, <laughs> if I said it, I must think it. By the way, hat tip to Josh Redder for... Yeah. Because I haven't listened to the episode yet, but yesterday he messaged me, Michelle on Hell, check this out. Which then we ran it up the flagpole and came up with this idea. Yeah, so, so I think... Um, so it's in Gregory of Nyssa uh, is where the idea I, I had is that it's not just individual humans that are created in God's image, but it's all of humanity um, because a little brother origin slipping in there. Right? Yeah. So, you know, because God is community, father, son and spirit, what it means to be made in God's image is the whole human community. Um you know, it's it's the human community that mirrors the life of the Trinity, and therefore, whatever we mean by salvation must incorporate all of humanity. Okay, so Jesus talks about hell about sixteen times, I think, in the English translation, anyway, in 
Matthew. Some of what's well, Matthew Mark is mostly where Gehenna shows up. So what do you do with that stuff? And uh, obviously you can you can talk about the Pharisee passages, but it's three times in a row in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in the text that we all like to quote about the sheep and the goats, mm-hmm. which we usually drop off the bad part. We always like to talk about, you know, seeing Jesus and the poor, but there's a whole section where people did see him and didn't do anything. So what do you do with those well, passages? How many American Christians like talking about Jesus and the poor? <laughs> Just, well, there's, the there's high, me. The uh, a... No, I don't have eyes. Well, well I, American Christians. Yeah, you're right. So, so I think, talk, to, yeah, talk I think, to me about Jesus and hell. Uh, you know, my numbers might be off, but I, I did do this as a project not, not that long ago. Um, and so if you look up all the passages in the New Testament that seem to be talking about what we think of as eternal conscious torment, uh, I think it's only three passages. Um, and the more interesting contrast for me is the 47 mentions in the New Testament of the kind of the, the allness uh, of God's salvation. Um, and so, so like those passages are there. They are overwhelmed by passages that – um, talk about the cosmic scope of God's salvation. Um, and, and, but for me, like, it's not so much scriptural as it is just logical that if we're told that, you know, if we're told in scripture that God made all things and called them good and that God is determined to get them all back again, um, that Christ came for everyone and desires the salvation of all, it, it makes no logical sense to me to say that in the end, God doesn't get what God wants. Now, it's funny. You said it sounds logical, not biblical. Now you're starting to sound like a Calvinist when you do that. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah, he's, I mean, yeah, just, just, you scratch the uh, Methodist veneer there. He bleeds a little uh, sort of reformational Augustinian. Yes, there's George Woodfield lurking around exactly. there somewhere. He's yeah. a real Methodist. He's and, a real Methodist. And, and then there's other, I mean, it's just, you know, so it's, you know, what Christians mean by freedom is, you know, slavery to Christ or to God. And so that like the idea that we would have the freedom to choose something other than God is um, not an understanding that Christians have a freedom um, that ultimately that we could still resist God. Um, I, I don't think makes sense. And I think it would be, be this is, you know, this is David Bentley Hart, my old teacher that in the end, if even just a few uh, remain behind in perdition, it would have been better, morally speaking, for God not to have created it all. What about extinction, soul extinction? I th- there seems to be lots of passages that talk about perishing, particularly Paul. Paul talks about perishing, talks about death almost a spiritual Annihilationism death. is the technical term <laughs> for the view, which John Stott got tagged with, but he actually never confessed to believing it. But he was in a dialogue. I have the book somewhere in the shelf somewhere. I think. Well, I think you could certainly read the Lake of Fire passages in Revelation. Well, well in a too. dialogue with like a liberal Anglican figure, but I repeat myself, liberal Anglican. But um, Stott is is they they go back and forth on lots of like key ideas in Christian faith, and they have a dialogue on hell. And actually, Stott, in an effort to kind of brunt the force of some of the criticism of exactly what you're saying, Jason, like of of the of this problem, he says. He floats the annihilationism as a possibility, although he never really claimed it. People tag him with it now, but he he threw it out there as a possible opening. Well, he's not. I mean, that's that's been an option periodically in the history of thought about it. Rarely, Aaron. The emphasis has to be. There's actually a great book. Yeah, 
Yeah, but go ahead. To refute Bill on annihilationism. I'm sorry, I interrupted yeah, I, to offer a historical footnote. Well, you're always interrupting. I, but no, I think it's, you know, I think you know, certainly I, I, I agree with the tradition that says um, for those who resist the love of God, the love of God feels like wrath or fire. Um, like, I have no problem saying that. And not like, but the idea that that would go on forever, eternally so, that like for eternity, God would not get what God so clearly announces throughout Scripture. Um, but that's that's what I have a problem with. It, it just doesn't make logical sense to me. And I think to to look at like those passages in Revelation, or, or even to make Jesus, um, it's possible that Jesus, you know, is wrong <laughs> and is like preaching. Um, that, that I just think it's. Uh, for God to have created out of nothing morally obligates God to make it come out right. I think it morally, uh, I think you could make a case, it morally requires God to try to do something about it. But to say that he is absolutely obligated to override, in part, the free will that he gives, that, do, that doesn't follow to me. That doesn't follow me that he has to make people irresistibly come to him. I mean, the only thing we can't avoid are death and taxes, and he beats those. <laughs> so, like, yeah. I know. I knew, I knew you were going to side with him, but this... I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't and, know what I'm and, siding with. And there's, I mean, what's, what's interesting to me, too, is that it's not clear to me that we're ever really free uh, in, until we are in God. That, you know, so it's what... The way Paul understands sin in Romans in particular is that, you know, we're captive to a power um, called sin with a capital S. And so it's not so much that, like, God allows us to resist him. It's that, you know, to what extent will God be okay with not rescuing us from a captor? Yeah. You're saying he's like Liam Neeson in Taken. That's like your, <laughs> yeah, that's your divine image. So, it's, so uh, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you do about the idea of, in a lot of ways to me, historically, the idea of, of Gehenna becoming a place of torment is kind of a apocalyptic theodicy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a sense where, and, and I, again, I, I, I can understand why you say Jesus could be wrong in his preaching. Um, and I think your count's a little low, but we can debate about that <laughs> in terms of how many times uh, hell is actually mentioned. But... Well, hell is mentioned more, but that doesn't mean all those men mentions resemble what we think of as eternal conscious torment. Well, part of what we, so much of what we think of is filtered through Dante. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to take, you have to do, take Dante out and you have to take Milton out and uh, you have to take uh, those fundamentalist burning hell movies out of your mind. Those of us who were subjected to those, which were traumatic to say the least. Uh, but I still think there's a sense where, if you look at what the Jewish apocalyptic understanding, uh, mm -hmm. where where the whole doctrine comes out, it is it is as much about it. It probably was driven more about punishment for the unjust than it was mm -hmm. resurrection for the just, and so it 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 does seem to, in a large part that the doctrine does try to answer the question about um, you know not we're not talking we're not talking about your neighbor who you know, drinks a little too much and uh, never got around to going to church. I mean, we're talking about Antiochus IV. Uh, we're talking about people who butchered half a million unarmed people in caves. And, you know, you, and every every Antiochus IV has come after him. So what do you do with that? See, well, that's like, so that what, what's at stake there is the gospel, though, right? Because if those people go to hell, um, the, like the gospel that 
you know, in Christ, God died for the ungodly disappears. Um, so that part of, part of what, so it's not just the logic of hell that bothers me. It's that it, it, um, it mutes the offense of the gospel, um, that the cross isn't just for victims. It's for the victimizers too. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I was at like this lecture, a pretty sophisticated kind of liberal Presbyterian church and the mainline suburbs of Philadelphia. And afterwards. Again, multiple redundancies yeah, there. Yeah, but yeah. I repeat myself again, liberal <laughs> Presbyterian church in the mainline Philadelphia. But, but afterwards, people were talking, we're having cocktails at this bar across the street and somebody said, well, I just heard the Dalai Lama on, uh, you know, on NPR and who could think the Dalai Lama was in hell? And that seemed very progressive, right? Mm-hmm. But, but I made the same point. I said, you know, it's interesting. Nobody says, I mean, who could imagine Charles Manson really had to go to hell? It's always, it, it's always a ver- immediately what slipped in was that heaven's for the good little boys and girls and hell's mm-hmm. for the bad little boys and girls. And we have a more expansive view Interreligiously of who the good little boys and girls are, but we don't have a nobody scan nobody scandalous will get there. Like, well, these are uh, blue blood Presbyterian right. socialites. Scandal is not allowed. Well, like, like <laughs> at the, least public. I mean, private ones are fine. But but yeah, right. I think that the, it is the gospel is part of the offense of the gospel that there could be mercy for Antioch. Right, but it, it, to me, part of the problem with this doctrine in the current context, um, I mean. Is that it? It's very. It feels an awful lot like you get a a crown for participation. You know, it's kind of like it's like <laughs> Bill's Day. Yeah, yeah, no, but yeah, you go. Okay, all right. Day. Everybody gets a crown of life for participation. Come on, boys and girls. There sounds like a parable like that. There's a lot of parables like that. This guy told him in the first century where everybody gets the same. Some people are pissed because people that showed up at the end get money for barely participating. <laughs> but those are, those Jason, are, who's that guy that told those stories? But those are people. Uh, you know, I know he's going to kiss up to you in his he's, podcast. He uh, is other the biggest, other than Bernie Sanders, he's my favorite socialist Jew. So. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that one Simpsons when Homer decides to stay up in the church? Oh, Marge, there's another guy that didn't always go to church. He had long hair, and the religious leaders were always on his back. <laughs> what was his name? No, really, I forget. Yeah. What was his name? <laughs> yeah. Well, no. And again, I think there's a sense God only has one thing to give, and that's his, his self. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the punchline of that parable. So, but um, there's still to me the idea that to eliminate the impossible possibility that some people will say no to that. I mean, that's one thing that always resonated with me about C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, because I can see there are people, why would you want to spend eternity with God if you didn't really want to be with him in this life? Now, that's taken away all the people didn't know or all that stuff. And it's also, um, it's also to me, not minimizing the work of Christ. If there are people who just are, as Don, you know, Don Blush kind of envisioned, if there is a hell, kind of being this kind of psychiatric, this eternal psychiatric ward, because it's kind of like C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce, for you to deny, to see God face to face and deny reality, you know, that's kind of a kind of an insanity. But, you know, he held out the, that the possibility that that could be the case. The Great Divorce would have been Yoko and John Lennon that could have saved the Beatles. That <laughs> like, no, the great it was divorce. too late. It was too late to save them yeah, at that point. Yeah. But, you know, but it's like, I mean, like to put it in Lewis's terms, it's like, you know, if we are captive to a white witch that we call sin, you know, is Aslan going to be content with just rescuing some of us? Um, and in what sense, if that's so, is he is he good? Um, that I and like so. There's all kinds of problems, right? Because that like, in what sense then, you know, is judgment on the sin of humanity meted out in the cross if it has to be meted out uh, in some other fashion? 
Um, like so, that's that's a problem. Our, but the trouble is, even you know, Paul still talks about humanity be under undering the wrath of God after the cross. That, I mean, that's still an act of tense for him. I mean, I, I I think you know again, Paul seems Paul seems to be pretty sure that something's going to get destroyed and that something's going to die. I mean, I'm just I think there's a there's a kind of a cumulative witness that it's just hard to write off. Um, but, but like, but like, what's important in, in in Romans and Paul is that like he starts off talking about the individual sins of, of humans, you know, in, in chapters one and two. Uh, but well, actually, in, that's kind of a univer- I mean, it's a kind of a universal portrait, not just in, individual sins. It's kind of, but it was the, like a collective individual. Like, yeah, like, the, well, the collective, the collective Gentile sin, and then chapter two is the collective Jewish yeah. sin. And, right. he, and he uses the word sin as a verb there, but like as the letter moves on, he starts making sin the subject of verbs, you know, and it's clear by the end of the letter that what he's been talking about with sin and death and the law is the power of Satan. So like too much of the talk of hell treats sin as things individuals do um, rather than enslavement to another who is contending against God. Like, I think that changes, like, how we understand hell dramatically. And, and like, how Paul understands salvation in Romans in particular, too, is that it's, it's more than just individuals. It's, it's all of creation. Um, and that, that's, that's a dimension that our talk of hell completely obscures. Well, but I also, I mean, so, yes, there is talk of a cosmic and a whole idea of redemption of creation, chapter 8. But then, I mean, again, I think if you're— sh- if you're sure what you know what Paul's talking about in Romans, then you need to get that commentary written. But uh, <laughs> 9 through 11 is... Get, don't, wait, don't you have an essay and a commentary uh, in Romans coming I, out? I do, actually. Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you haven't read his essay, Bill. There we go. It's, there we go. it's called Romans hey. is Funny. Yeah, it's, it's hilarious. Uh, but, <laughs> is it uh, funnier than cancer? <laughs> <laughs> but again, there is this back and forth of Romans 9 through 11. Again, that's a whole other... Mm-hmm. I mean, how we interpret that is... is uh, is a wonderful long discussion that we probably won't figure out. But I do think there's a sense, there's always this, again, I like the idea of the impossible possibility of even Paul saying, you know, God engrafted you in, God can take you out. Mm-hmm. I've often thought the idea of judgment in hell is as much of a doctrine for motivation for believers as it is some a non-believer. So for instance, if I'm a non-believer nowadays, I don't even believe in heaven, let alone there's a hell. But the idea of Christians, the idea to have a sense of urgency about what this is about. I, I, the trouble, the trouble, and again, I, I'm not without sympathies to your, to some of your inherent, uh, both your problems with the doctrine and some of your ideas of the of the sufficiency of the cross. But there's a sense where you're radically changing the New Testament with this interpretation. And I think what gets lost in that is a sum of that apocalyptic urgency. And it's maybe it's inevitable that that doesn't get lost. I, I think it's interesting to me that like all the reaction to like the Bernie Sanders like shtick at that uh Congressional testimony, you know, from yeah, the, yeah, whatever that yeah. guy was, you know, and like I, I'm like Russell Moore and several other Christian leaders, uh, like the way they defended the, the the idea of hell and judgment was, well, you know, we believe you know scriptures given to us by God, and it, so they had these like inerrantist kind of perspectives to argue their point um rather than because like bernie kept saying you know well am i condemned or is this person condemned and like you know the christian response is like we're all condemned um and i don't know like it's somehow by focusing so much on eternal punishment i think we obscure the gospel message like uh, i i I, I absolutely i agree that there are traditions 
and there are still movements of Christianity. I came out of one that spends home, you know, that almost is Manichaean, actually, the mm-hmm. way it talks about the devil and hell. Um, I totally Which, agree with that. For our non-geeky listeners, is an ancient view that's sort of like <laughs> Star Wars, where, where good, the light and dark side of the force are two equal and ultimate parts of the equation, and there is no higher good as in something like all forms of Platonism. I just think of... I just think, like a man who needs to finish his PhD. Or just think of Bannon, and then the same thing, you know, yeah, shortcut. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah I mean, no. it's, like, I was just thinking about, like, um, so the, the shooting in Alexandria just happened, you know, yes, just, just, down the, just down the street from me um, this morning, and, you know, we sent out an, uh, you know, we're praying for a kind of message to sure. hunger against. Sure, absolutely, and, you know, and I, I had to go back. The first draft that was written, I had to go back and make sure that, like, we inserted, um, you know, and we're praying for, you know, mercy for the shooter and praying for his family. Um, I noticed that. I saw that on your and, Facebook and, page. And I want you to know, I took notice of it, and I, I, that was, I, that was well, really, I, yeah. And that, yeah, that, that, I, I that's, thought that was thoughtful. That's being a Christian. It's like the Amish, you know, after the Amish shooting, something, you know. Uh, and fr- frequently we are not very Christian. I mean, the fact is we forget that praying for our enemies uh, and that we are to love our enemies and love our neighbor, those things get lost. So I, it, I commend you for, for, for being explicitly Christian in what you said. Well, it is in, like, but in the light of hell, like, you know, how I think it's relevant is, is that, you know, to a large extent, we are we are the people that we've loved. Um, and what does salvation mean for people who have loved ones like this shooter uh, in eternal conscious torment? Um, in what sense is salvation then good, or is God good? Uh, I, okay, I think I had trouble following your logic there. Well, it's interesting. This is a classic debate, actually, which it doesn't drop off until the modern period. But, I mean, Lombard, and this was a majority position, uh, bef- again, before the modern period, that, that actually... That those in heaven could look down and see the torment, right, right, the great of, cloud, yeah, of the reprobate right. in hell, and that that would in no way diminish their satisfaction, right. So basically, in response to, I think Lombard would say, Jason, in their fully sanctified perspective, the ones they love, they would see the reprobate sons of bitches, uh, and yeah, forgive the non-gender inclusive reference, but um, and that they deserve it, and that actually it might it could possibly enhance your. Enjoyment yeah. of the beatific vision. Yeah. If but, that sounds like it's crazy, it's because it is. It's <laughs> fucking crazy. I mean, that, that's where, you know, like, so, like, David Bentley Hart, like, makes the point that, like, at some point, like, these beliefs in hell, like, faith and perfect nihilism become one and the same. Um, and that the God that Christians worship it appears to be evil. Yeah. And I would totally, I would totally stand against that. And I do think. That, you know, the doctrine of hell became a doctrine of power and mm-hmm. a, a weapon in the church with its power. Um, and in the early church, the most popular non-canonical uh, writing, right, was the Apocalypse of Peter, which is pornographic. <laughs> I mean, in its, in its portrayal of the – some parts literally because of what happens in some – I mean, there was a former yeah. – I'm sure Dante got a copy of that. Yeah, I'm not point. sure it was the most popular. Apocalypse. It was one of the most. It Nietzsche, was, it, well, Nietzsche said it. Well, then it must be true. <laughs> Number one <laughs> on the Jerusalem yourself. Times bestseller list. Yeah, yeah. So I have three thoughts, uh, I think. Just three? Yeah, I think there's three. Well – there's well. First of all, I want to commend a book called uh, by David Powies called um, "Hell: uh, A Hard uh, Look at a Heart." Was it? Hell 
a hard look at a hard question, the fate of the unrighteous in the New Testament. And basically, this guy is like an evangelical Anglican from Australia. I think it's his PhD thesis. And he actually studies Irenaeus, Gregory of Nyssa, I think, and Augustine. And he looks at how Irenaeus is the only one who comes close to something like annihilationism. And he thinks it's because he's the least platonic. So, right. so eternity, the idea that like the soul is sort of something eternal, that something has to be done with and that sort of thing. So that's just an interesting thing. Yeah. It's a certain reading. He's a re- yeah. reading Paul in a certain way. Or yeah. Sense, and yeah. And so, so, so that's just something for reference. The other thing is like George Hunsinger has a great essay on hell and damnation. He talks mm-hmm. about the majority report, which is Augustine, which is eternal conscious torment. The, the minority report, which is apocatastasis you know, origin. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about his, his own view, which he thinks is Bart's view mm-hmm. and Maximus, the confessor, uh, which is holy silence that, that this is, there's a mystery here. The scripture mm-hmm. talks about. So I think that there's something interesting there. And lastly, this is the man, RFC, Robert Farrer Capon from the romance of the word. He says this, I am, and I am not a universalist. I am one if you're talking about what God and Christ has done to save the world. The Lamb of God has not taken away the sins of some, of only the good or the cooperative or the select few who can manage to get their act together and die as perfect peaches. He has taken away the sins of the world, every last being in it, and he has dropped them down from the black hole of Jesus' death. On the cross, he has shut up forever on the subject of guilt. There is therefore now no condemnation. All human beings at all times and places are home free, whether they know it or not feel it or not, believe it or not. But I am not a universalist if you're talking about what people may do about accepting that happy-go-lucky gift of God's grace. I take with utter seriousness everything that Jesus had to say about hell, including the eternal torment that such a foolish non-acceptance of his already given acceptance must entail. All theologians who hold Scripture to be the Word of God must inevitably include in their work a tractate on hell. But I will not, because Jesus did not, locate hell outside the realm of grace. Grace is forever sovereign, even in Jesus' parables of judgment. No one is ever kicked out of the end of those parables who wasn't included in at the beginning. That's good. Yeah, I do. Th- I do think often the doctrine of hell or the doctrine of ultimate things forgets the whole trajectory that any kind of judgment in the Hebrew Scripture is uh, always restorative. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I, again, I just want. And, and again, I think one of the things is I, I just want to make sure if Jesus is wrong about some stuff, this loving your neighbor thing, he's still okay on that. <laughs> God, just so if you can send me a list of where he's okay, where he's not, because I, you know, it's kind of like there's a play right now, Tolstoy, uh, Jefferson, and I forget the third person, Dickinson, all wrote their own version of the New Testament. There's a play in Philadelphia about them having a conversation about it. So maybe we can get you on that on that panel. Well, no, I mean, I, I'm not saying Jesus is wrong. I'm saying that. Um, well, you, you did earlier. Well, I'm being coy. He said, he said, he said maybe Jesus. Okay, right. I just want to. I just want to. I want to clarify. No, I think so, what we need to allow for Jesus to be uh, an apocalyptic Jewish post-exilic preacher. Yeah, he's a first. He's a first-century Jew, right? Yeah, absolutely. And 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 to have that be different than the apocalypticism that Paul is preaching to the Romans. You don't think Paul's a first-century apocalyptic Jew? Not, I think in, in like certain important ways he's not. Um, oh, or, well, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the Paul you, Paul takes Jew, Jewish apocalypticism and does something different with it. I, I I think I know what you're saying there. Like it's a different kind of. He, I, that that he would, I think you're saying right is that there's probably more 
of a reinvention of oh, because of the genre. Well, he has to because he runs into the resurrected Messiah. So he has to exactly. change his apocalyptic yeah. thought. Yeah. All right. I get that. Yeah. Um, I would change some things about myself if I re- and I haven't run into him lately, which is. Well, you I did. Am. You were uh, you were you were born again at a good Methodist church. That's true. But I think right. I, actually no. I was born again in my closet. Well, but inspired by a good. You were, no, he was a fundamentalist, independent. I thought he was. A, oh, you ended up in a Methodist. I, I ended up there. So that's your what, heart. That's you, what civilized me. Your, that's what got my religion domesticated. Your heart, normal. <laughs> so your your heart was strangely warmed in a closet. Exactly. All right. Very good. So I, the, like David Bentley Hart has an essay called Creation from Nothing in his book The Hidden and the Manifest that is about hell that is awesome. And then yeah, I know the book. I know the book. Yeah. And then I like I, I, it's probably important to say that as like uh, as a so this is what I believe as Jason the Christian. Um, I do not like I, as far as like hell goes. I agree with Bart that you know we have to have this holy silence because the gospel itself only allows us to say so much. Yeah. Um, and so like as a preacher, you know, I don't go that far because um, you know I'm supposed to steward the tradition. Can I give on Balthazar the last word in our podcast? Uh, By the way, can we just and you give shout out to Maximus Confessor too, incredibly amazing thinker that a lot of people miss. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, this is from uh, Dare We Hope that all men be saved. Uh, Faith in the unboundness of divine love and grace also justifies hope for the universality of redemption. Although through the possibility of resistance to grace, that remains open in principle. The possibility of of eternal damnation also persists. Seen in this way. What were described earlier as limits to divine omnipotence are also canceled out again. They exist only as long as we oppose divine and human freedom to each other and fail to consider the sphere that forms the basis of human freedom. Human freedom can neither be broken nor neutralized by divine freedom, but it may well be, so to speak, outwitted. The descent of grace to the human soul is a free act of divine love, and there are no limits to how far it may extend. Amen. May God outwit us all, my friends. He will. <laughs> hey, hey, it was, this was fun. It was good, fun. Good meeting you, Jason. God bless you, brother. You too. Take care. You guys are going now? We have to. All right. Oh